Were any of you here last time I spoke? It was June 24th. I did what I usually do, and I went really big picture, kind of went all over the map. This is sort of a part two, in a way, but it's a standalone. Uh, but this is a lot more practical stuff you can do with giant awareness that actually helps the routine of your life. That's kind of the focus today. When I was a little kid, my dad would pile us in the car and we would drive to Kansas where he grew up from San Diego at that time. Uh, I was a little kid in San Diego and then I was a bigger kid up here in the Bay Area and for the rest of my life thus far. So we'd leave from San Diego and we'd drive out across the deserts and across the Southwest, that land and head across those highways. And we'd have some amazing times out on the road. And one of the things that was most amazing to me was that my dad could just go out, get in the car, and drive to Kansas, which was 2,000 miles. Now, I could get on my bike and drive to my friend's house up the street. I knew the way. I could even, sometimes I wasn't supposed to, but I was not necessarily always an obedient kid, and so I could even get on my bike and go much, 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 much further than that, and I knew the way back. I could go just about as far as I could possibly comprehend and still know the way back and get away with it, right? But if you take the distance that I knew and compared it with driving to Kansas, I didn't know anything. And I would be amazed. I'd get in the car, I'd be looking out the window at these highways and like, I think, how does my dad know the way for 2,000 miles. I didn't understand maps. I'm talking about a pretty little kid. I just thought he had it all up here, just knew the way. That was amazing to me. Now I can go out and get in the car and drive to Kansas. I can drive to New York. I can drive to Chicago. I can go just about anywhere I want to. And I don't necessarily know the way. I, but I know how to do it. I know how to find out. The difference between me then and me now is I have developed, right? This is not rocket science. Actually, it is rocket science, but we're, we're sort of a passenger in most of our own development. We don't have to engineer it, fortunately. But I've developed. I've learned stuff. Now, if I take the me that I was back when I was a little kid, and the me that I am now, considering what I've learned, which is a whole boatload of stuff, I like being this level better than being a little kid. Because I like knowing stuff. Anybody identify with that at all? So I'm going to talk to you about something today. I think I'll read something first from the scripture, and then we'll get a little object lesson happening. Think in terms of development. When we're born, it's automatic. 
Our development is on automatic pilot. God does all the rocket science. We just lay there being a baby, and without trying, without any knowledge, a year later, we're more developed. Assuming somebody fed us. Our development is entirely dependent on someone else, and they really don't know how to do it either. They just feed us. It just happens. It's on automatic pilot. And as we grow, we learn how to contribute or not to our own development. You know, you get to be an eight-year-old and it's like, you can make choices that really affect how you grow or don't. It's a lot more power than when you're an infant. And then you get to be an adult and something we never talk about but we all kind of know it subconsciously. Something happens. The automatic pilot of our development shuts off forever. And once you hit adulthood, you can still develop and mature and grow and become more, but you have to choose it. If you don't, it won't happen automatically. You'll learn stuff, but it won't necessarily automatically be healthy growth. So here's a passage from Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, talking to, I'm sure there were plenty of children there and they would have benefited too, but I'm going to say he was talking to adults. And think, listen in those terms, the development in its automatic nature has shut off, and he's calling on you to make choices. So from uh, Matthew 6, verse 19, I'm going to read all the way to the end of the chapter. So just get comfortable and open your ears. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, if your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. 
They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon, in all his splendor, was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I'm going to back up a little bit to one of those verses and just kind of read it through a couple more times. Verse 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. Now this has the tone to me, as I read through that, almost the opposite of what I said earlier. It sounds like development is kind of on automatic pilot, because Jesus is saying, don't worry about tomorrow, it'll take care of itself. It's not actually what he said says it has enough trouble of its own. In other words, don't stress yourself with extra worry. But he's talking about trusting God with an extreme simplicity, the way the birds of the air trust God. But they don't worry about their investments or their stockpile of food Stockpile. Maybe there's a little pun there. Uh, and God feeds them. And the flowers, they just grow up and bloom. God clothes them, and they're amazing. But Jesus knows that he's in a world where there are other voices than his, right? And those voices talk a lot. They never shut up. There are voices telling us very, very strongly and very, very constantly to worry about tomorrow. I think he's actually countering something. And it's not written in the text specifically, but we know it. 
how many voice, how many reasons that could you could make a case for them being good reasons do you have to worry about tomorrow or anything in the future? I have a long list of reasons why I should worry about the future, and many of the things on that list are really good, intelligent reasons. And he's saying, don't do it. I'm going to zoom out a little bit. I'm going to put up two signs. That one. And that one. Can you guys see those? Now, work with me. Words are tricky. Words mean things. We could not have built a society of any kind without words. We have to communicate. But words are inconsistent. When I say the word fulfillment, which is the sign over here, I'm aware that we don't all necessarily think of that in the same way. So there's the word itself, and then there's like how it's generally thought of for different people. So I want to kind of define why I would put these two words up here, because I'm going to pit them against each other, in a way. So fulfillment, this is the stuff that we go after for personal gratification. That's how I'm using this word at the moment. Personal gratification. In other words, this uh, a person who is down in their subconscious assumptions, the way they're living throughout their routine all the time. Just they're not thinking about it, just what gets them up in the morning and what makes them, what drives their choices, is seeking personal fulfillment. And that's the perfect perspective to live in for all the voices of the world that tell us to, that, that what we ultimately need is to be fulfilled. When you're a little baby, going back to that, you were an expert, even more than now. There's one thing babies are absolutely born with, fully intact, and that is a complete perspective, fully immersed in need for personal fulfillment. That's all they know. And they can't do anything about it. So we're born into kind of a frustration. It's probably why we cry our eyes out when we're babies. Because we want and we need and we can't do anything about it. And we don't even know what we want or need. We just feel and want and need. Almost generically. It's overwhelming, right? And the development happens slowly. And we, if we're cared for, we get what we need. But as we learn stuff, what we want changes. Think about what you wanted when you were two. I guarantee a healthy two-year-old wants stuff 
as much as you want stuff now. It's just different stuff. And think about what happened to the things you wanted as you developed, as you formed. So over here, formation. This person is driven by growth and development to become more than they are. So when this person walks into a relationship, they're thinking, usually subconsciously, I wonder how this person fits into my life. They already have a sense of their life and things need to fit it, right? This person walks into a relationship and thinks, well, here's somebody different. What can I learn from them? What can I contribute? They see it as a growth opportunity and new possibilities to become more. Does that make any sense? Am I getting really boring? Okay. Now, in reality, we know that fulfillment is a great thing, formation is a great thing. These things are not actually opposed. I know that. But there's got to be a way to get at some concepts, and sometimes you have to bend words around a little bit to communicate something, which is what I'm doing. So for the moment, I kind of want to be oversimplified and look at this as two kinds of people, even though we both, even though we all have, have both within us. So a person who's driven by fulfillment, seeking after personal fulfillment, themselves first, self-centric, they're focused on what they need, what they want, what works for them, your relationships are viewed as fitting or not fitting into your life, and your possessions are viewed as building blocks from which you can make your life better. Because you're after fulfillment. Everything you see is like a buffet in life. Does this work for me? Do I want that? I call it eating the donut. I can eat a carrot or I can eat a donut. And in the short term, easy, most instantly fulfilling, I like the donut. Even though the carrot offers more to my life as a whole. A formation lens focuses on transformation, growth, learning. Your relationships are viewed as possibilities for co-learning and growth. And your possessions are viewed as opportunities to learn how to steward things that belong to God. They have nothing to do with making your life on earth better necessarily. They have to do with managing things so as to develop godly character. I have a book. Ah, oh, here it is. There's a quote I want to read from Peter Kostenbaum. Anybody ever heard of him? Uh, but it's in a book by Jean Marie Jobs. So I'm quoting her, quoting him. Uh, quick little advertisement. My brother Tim, sitting back there, published this book. 
Very cool. Get a copy. It's really good. Yeah, Tim. And the author, this lovely lady, Jean Marie Jobs, is speaking right here next Sunday. Be here, bring a friend. She's awesome. Okay. John Jobs, who does the worship here occasionally, it's her husband. All right. Some people, this is Peter Kostenbaum, some people are permanently angry or in a constant state of feeling sorry for themselves. The explanation? It's a common way to avoid the anxiety of freedom, which is the fear of responsibility, the resistance against owning one's choices. The result? It keeps them infantilized, there's a fun word, it keeps them infantilized, infant, baby, they stay a baby. It keeps them infantilized, and none of the rewards of mature leadership will be available to them. Not necessarily ever, but only after there's a change. When we reach adulthood and we encounter, and nobody sends us a memo, it, we just each have to deal with it, kind of by surprise in our own way. We reach adulthood and, or wherever, whenever it hits you, we start, it's like a fork in the road. And without even knowing it, we just march on down one or the other. And again, this is a little bit artificial. I know that these things are not truly pitted against each other, but it, it creates a way to communicate. And we start living according to that which fulfills me, and it's me-centric, or we start living according to saying yes to formation, which, in, which is way higher risk. Because saying yes to that which forms you, you know, when you were eight years old, well, here's a way to say it. Picture yourself when you're eight years old, but you've never heard of an adult for all you know, you're eight years old, so to speak, forever. You're just at that level of maturity, and that's it. You can show up for your life, you can be present, you can be responsible, you can do everything right. Now compare that with a kid, eight-year-old, who knows about adulthood, who knows that next year I'm going to be nine, and in two years I'm going to be ten, and then there's going to be, I, I know that teenage years are coming, and eventually I'll grow up. Now, they don't understand necessarily what that will feel like, but they know it's true. They can show up as an eight-year-old with a little more power because they know they're on a trajectory towards something greater. So saying yes to formation is like that. There's no end. There's no such thing as a human being that hits a finished point and then they're done, and that's who they are for eternity. There's just no such thing. God's infinite, never stopping, always running over and overflowing, expanding creativity is meant to bloom in you forever. 
And saying yes to that is very high risk, but it's life itself. And, if I may say this, to a room full of mostly Christians, maybe all, if we choose Jesus as our master, this is what he's all about. Read through the Gospels carefully. Read through the letters of his apostles carefully. He never indicated at all that he would do anything to make your earthly life great. Nor did he seek it after, after it himself. What he offers is infinitely bigger to teach us to think like an eternal spirit and act like we live forever. To, to learn to act like we're indestructible and that death is merely a... I don't know what word to fill in there. A problem, a transition, a shedding of our outer husk. My favorite author, George MacDonald, he says, growing old is not merely decay. It is the drying up and the shedding of our husk, <laughs> which is amazing because it's like an, another emergence. It's kind of another birth. To live like that's true, to walk in faith. So on a practical level, how does one change what they want? I want the donut. And I'm looking at the carrot, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm in metaphor here, and literal. I'm looking at the carrot, and I'm thinking, I should want the carrot. Everybody says it's good for me, and it'll help me, you know, help my body be healthy. But I want the donut. But I should want the carrot. But I want the donut. How do you change that? It's really hard. Have you ever tried to unwant something that you want? Maybe even on a big level, like I want this person and they're not available. How do I unwant them? There's a big one. It's a long list of stuff. Or reverse it. Have you ever tried to want something that you know you should want and you don't? So here's a little tool. If you find yourself going after your own personal fulfillment, and that's what drives you, or you're wondering, maybe, is that what drives me? And it's probably a mix. It's not a literal fork in the road. It's a, it's a transformation, kind of from this thinking like a baby to thinking like a grown-up. A grown-up that continues to grow. A growing up. best way I've come up with saying it is, is like this. I hope this works. Think of your life as a big ship out on the sea, and you're in motion. And you're going from where you started to somewhere else. And your life is happening aboard this ship. And you learn, like, you know what? I think we're a few degrees off. We have to change course a little bit. All of us experience that from time to time. We don't necessarily just start off pointed right where we ought to go and just relax and get there. There's navigating involved. So the back of the ship has this big old giant rudder 
And when that rudder turns, the ship kind of lists and it turns. It works. Now, work with me here. I think in a human life, there's two rudders in the back. One's big and one's really tiny. You know that, uh, that idea that our consciousness is like the tip of the iceberg and our subconsciousness is like the whole berg? And if you start thinking that way and looking at life, it really bears out that the things that you're not thinking about but that you are full of down in your mind that aren't necessarily on your mind, as we say it, those things make your choices faster than anything you could consciously think. So I think the ship of your life it's your subconscious that turns that big rudder. And our consciousness turns the little rudder. And it's really annoying. Most of us understand what it's like to say, okay, I'm just gonna keep with the donut metaphor, but translate it into anything. I say, okay, I'm not gonna eat the donut, I'm not gonna eat the donut, I'm not gonna eat the donut. I set the donut down, look at the carrot, I eat the donut. I ate the donut again. What is wrong with me? Okay, carrot this time. You can do it, buddy. Come on. I eat the donut. We do that in many ways. And it's really... It seems impossible. Like, how can I change my desire? So you, th you think, see, that's the little rudder working. It doesn't do much. It's like, I am determined to stop this bad habit, or I'm gonna be, you know, next time I start to get mad, I won't. I just won't, I'll just be patient. And the stimulus comes, and you get mad. And it's like, I told myself not to, now I'm twice as mad. Um, okay, here's the trick. The big rudder that really does turn the ship learned everything it knows from the little rudder. It's actually a thousand million choices that you've made over time. Every time you click the little rudder, the big one moves just slightly. We know we value things like faithfulness over time. You know, how many people respect a person that is faithful over time? What does that mean? But we respect faithfulness over time more than we respect somebody making a big, loud proclamation. Oh, I'm never going to do that again. It's like, well, okay. Time will tell. See if you can be faithful to that choice over time. That's what we'll respect. That's what we'll really hear. So the trick is in the tiny choices all day long. And that's the faithfulness. That's beginning to understand what Jesus is talking about. That's beginning to shift from a life of personal fulfillment, which ultimately leaves you in isolation and everything you gain, you, you get to die and lose anyway, to a life of formation, which is building 
and eternal perspective and relationships and stuff and, and a way to interact with life that when you die, you get to keep all of it. That's what Jesus is all about. He's not just offering, you know, believe in me and I'll give you eternal life. You get to sit on a cloud or something vague, but your life that you really love will be over. And you'll take up playing the harp or something. I don't know where we came up with that crap, but it's not from him. He's talking about the full vividity of your life continuing forever into better and better and better contexts. But it requires, absolutely requires, just like the difference between yourself when you're a baby and yourself now, it requires continued growth into it. And he will do the rocket science, but he's waiting for us to make choices. Flip that little rudder over to like, okay, I'm, I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna deliberately buy a carrot and a donut just as an exercise, and I know I'm gonna throw the donut away. I'm gonna waste the dollar. Okay, I put them on the counter, and I throw the donut away, and I eat the carrot. I'm not trying to change my wants, I'm just doing something. But that little rudder flips, and the big rudder gets a message, and it slightly changes. So here's what it comes down to. If you can make your awareness macro, live in as big a possible an awareness as you can. Ponder eternal things. Fill your mind with the kingdom of God. And there won't be room for these little donut distractions. but make choices in the micro. Get up in the morning, the littlest thing, the littlest, you can't go too small, the littlest thing. I put on my shoes, I give thanks for shoes. I give thanks that I know how to tie knots. I give thanks for my fingers, they work. And just start giving thanks and start, start living in the tiny micro things, an attitude like Christ. I turn on my faucet, water comes right out. Thank you. Water comes right out, right inside my room. That's amazing. Most people don't have that in the world. And you just start making micro choices. Then the magic happens. When you really start to get your center of gravity into your own formation, God gives you the donut. It's amazing. This becomes the way you think, and this happens. Lo and behold, you get it all. That's the message of Jesus. But it's tricky, which is why I'm talking about it. So I don't know. We'll just leave that there. No. I'll leave them up. You guys can ponder that. So God is into fulfillment. He fulfills his word. He fulfills his promises. He, and he makes good promises. 
and he wants us to enjoy our moments. And he's teaching us to think bigger and grow and not just seek after ourselves. I'm going to go back and close with that passage, just the one verse. Take a couple hours sometime. Find a quiet place and just read through the Sermon on the Mount slowly. It's really amazing if you give it some time when, you're, when your mind isn't frenetic, you know. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And, he was talking about clothes and, you know, the things we worry about tomorrow. And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. He doesn't just say, don't worry about tomorrow. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and I will give you all these things. Worrying about it is silly. I have a storehouse of loot for you coming to you. Tomorrow's worth isn't coming today. It's coming tomorrow. So don't worry about it. I've got this. That's kind of his... So in the spirit of Christ's mastery, each week we come to the table and take some of the bread and some of the cup. And each week we experience maybe a slightly different facet of what it means. But it's it's, it's him. It, it's him. For, reason, for some very good reasons, he's not walking around in a body with us at the moment. If he were, he could only be with a few people at a time and most of the world would be without him. He's done something far greater through the Holy Spirit by making it possible for all of us to experience his presence anywhere. Like Tom was saying earlier, the house of God is everywhere. Uh, so Jesus took the bread, said, this is my body. He broke it. Bread is food. And through literal food, He's giving us spiritual food. It's, a, it, it's literal and metaphor. He passed out bread, and the bread was real, and the bread was ingested, and it became part of their body, and it did the magic of developing them, right? Becoming their physical life. But through our belief and our faith, we take it as a symbol of it's Him, it's Jesus that we're taking in and ingesting in our spirit and His, and his presence. Do we have servers to come up? I'm, okay, I'm going to pray for just a moment. God, thank you for Jesus and for the kind of life that he's leading us into.
God, thank you for your patience with us. Many of us are very slow learners, and you've been nothing but gracious. Thank you so much. Thank you for moving at a pace that we can actually move at. And we ask you, gently and carefully, please do transform us. Assist us as we learn to choose formation and greatness in Christ rather than the greatness of our egotistical self. Help us to gain the difference and to walk that walk. And thank you that you're with us every step. Thank you for the community of faith that uh, we can be here to support each other. We ask that you would bless that effort with your presence. Amen.